I'm Jahan Sharif, and welcome to this week's Jaja In. I believe that taking the time to better understand how a person lives life is one of the best ways to deepen our connection to our own. This week, I'm joined by Jesse Morton. He's a de-radicalized jihadist and a former recruiter for Al-Qaeda. He's not just any recruiter, though. He is the number one English language recruiter in the history of the jihad. I wanted to speak with Jesse not just because his story is riveting, but because I believe that anyone who has had the impact that he has had, positive or negative, has a lot to teach. I wasn't wrong. Please enjoy my conversation with Jesse Morton, former radicalizer, propagandist, and recruiter for Al-Qaeda, and co-founder of Parallel Networks. All right, well, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me. I do appreciate it. Why don't we start at the very beginning? What does it mean to be radicalized? Well, I think that the first thing we have to do is dissect the definition, right? So radical comes from the Latin root radicalius, which means to go to the root of the matter, to go to the heart of the issue. And so a lot of people argue that radicalization is a neutral term. And in fact, I guess it depends on how you look at things. The term radicalization in the contemporary context means believing that the system that exists not just needs to be gone to the root and critiqued, but that it needs torn down and restructured and rebuilt. And so I think when we talk about radicalization currently, we look at fundamental problems uh, of people that have particular grievances against whatever order. It might be a nation state, it might be a transnational institution, the European Union, or something along those lines. But really, it's a, it's, it's a perception of the world that the world is unjust and that it needs torn down and restructured in a different manner. Um, and so radicalization no longer really needs to be a critical thinker and to look at the world the way that it can be changed and altered, but it has a lot to do with frustrated people that feel as if their needs are not fulfilled, that are not getting a meaning and significance and purpose uh, in their lives, and therefore, rather than look internally to see what might be the cause of that, look externally to find blame and to find fault on the system as it exists. And as anybody knows who's tried to uh, run their head into the wall and change the entire system outside of oneself, uh, it's a very futile struggle. And that's why we see a lot of people that engage in cognitive radicalization go on to what we might call the engagement in violent extremist behavior, which would be carrying out attacks to try to fulfill the ideological cause. Right. So one thing that came to mind, I think right now radicalization has a negative connotation. But in the definition that you gave, there are a lot of other stories throughout history where, you know, there are positive outcomes to behavior that might seem radical at first. So I'm thinking, you know, in American history, I'm thinking Martin Luther King, or I'm thinking Malcolm X, or in South Africa, I'm thinking Nelson Mandela. For the context in which they operated, I'm sure what they were advocating for might have seemed radical to to general society. And justifying the means is incredibly crucial to distinguishing between radicalization in a proper understanding and in the current context. And I'll answer it anecdotally. When I was a jihadist, propagandist, and recruiter, I oftentimes referenced the struggle of Al-Qaeda against the United States in the same way that the United States struggled against the British Empire in the uh, period of 1776 moving forward. Mm. My brain, because it was traumatized and was very prone to split the world into black and white and seek simplistic narratives without nuance and grace in between, assumed that was the case. It never occurred to me that the United States founding fathers and the people that were rebelling against the British never called for people that were living in Britain to go mow down you know, civilians on the streets, that the tactics that they engaged in were against an aggressive 
occupying force that came to their continent and refused uh, to allow them to address their grievances by nonviolent means. So the strategy of Al-Qaeda was certainly not conflatable or comparative to that era. But in my mind, in the black and white worldview of the extremists, it seemed that the two were one and the same. Mm-hmm. So the tactics and the strategy and the end that justifies the means being that the means of violence to drive at what would be considered a nonviolent end, I think is a demarcating factor. And in the liberal world, we have a, no excuse for uh, trying to address grievances that might be legitimate uh, by violent means. Well, let me jump in really quickly. Let me jump in really quickly, because I do want to get to that a little bit later. I want to spend some time talking about that. But before we get there, I wanted to know, are there certain ideas that are more susceptible to radicalization than others? Um, Particular ideas with regard to particularized ideology? Ideology, yeah. Like, is there something about certain types of ideology that allow them to become, you know, because puppies, for example, puppies, the love of puppies is never going to be radicalized. You know, puppies do not lend themselves to radicalization, but there are certain things that do. And so I'm curious, what types of ideology is more susceptible to be uh, twisted toward extreme ideology or radicalization? I I think that what we're learning more and more about radicalization into violent extremism is that there's oftentimes a traumatized individual that is lured by a broader movement into synthesizing or merging their identity with a movement because they don't have an ability to function on their own and they need that sense of community. Mm. So there are different outlets and different ideologies, but the fascinating thing is that when you dissect them and you pick them apart, they're relatively the same. And the reason that I think one of the best ways to display that is with regard to the way that we see this relationship between jihadism and far-right-wing extremism currently. Mm-hmm. So we have a jihadist that proclaimed that the United States is a crusader force allying with a Zionist-controlled uh, government in Israel to declare war against the Muslims at large. Same narrative that's utilized by far right-wing extremists, they use a term called the Zionist-occupied government, that America's foreign policy is controlled by Zionists. For far right-wing extremists despise globalization, they despise uh, uh, the quote-unquote New World Order, in the same way that jihadists despise the fact that liberalism and democracy is creeping into their uh, fundamentalism that they perceive should be the future of their world. They all hearken to a pristine utopic past. ISIS calls to its caliphate, the white nationalist calls to an era where there was slavery and where there was no such thing as having to appease liberal or democratic norms. Uh, back to an era of authoritarianism and conquest of the strong and the powerful. It's very, very similar. And even with regard to what we see somewhat of a resonance of far left-wing extremism, they also believe that fundamentally democracies are corrupt and that they're controlled by the 5% or the elites. Um, they have not necessarily justified violence, though there are factions of anarchists that do, and in increasingly polarized milieus like we have today, where we're all divided between left and right, and people are getting more and more radical on each side of the political spectrum, we could project even a very similar narrative and a very similar ideology that would appeal for people that are on the left. So, But they're not really, when you look at the core fundamentals, they're not really that different from each other. And that means that it probably has much more to do with the individual susceptibility uh, that they appeal to rather than the movement being powerful in and of itself. Yeah, and that's also, that's something that's a really good segue to, to your personal story. Because I think, uh, we've spoken before, but I think with your personal story, you had characteristics that made you, obviously, uniquely susceptible to radicalization. Well, first of all, do you agree with that? I, I think that my susceptibility, I can, I can offer it not as an excuse, because I think that it can be conveyed in a way that says, I was susceptible because this happened to me, and I'm a victim of the ideology that I adopted. 
I can, I, but I will say that, yes, uh, I was opened up to and totally um, open to the idea of adopting an ideology that wanted to tear down a world that I thought was uncruel and unjust to me. Yeah, and I think part of the way that you came to that is because of your of your childhood. I'm, can you tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up? Well, I mean, I was born in a rural Pennsylvania town, out in the middle of nowhere. I lived on a commune with a father who was very ultra-leftist, was from New Jersey, went to travel to Pennsylvania to go to school, was very countercultural. met a local mother who had a very small world, only knew the local world, didn't know much about it outside, and they got married because he impregnated her or she got pregnant. And that marriage was an absolute failure. He started to, my father started to cheat on my mother at a very young age. And by the time I became four or five, they were already basically separated but staying together because income was not sufficient to get a divorce. My mother's resentment, a combination of her mental health complications, and all kinds of different variables made her take out the resentment she had for her father on myself and my sister. And so every day of my life as a child, because we didn't live in a town, we lived out in the middle of nowhere, she could say, scream, do whatever she wanted, and she turned towards very excessive abuse, um, choking, biting, spitting, pulling hair, um, uh, to the point of, uh, to this day, if you look closely at my arms and my legs, you have uh, scratch marks, bite marks, uh, and scars that, at the age of 40, uh, still remain all over, uh, all over my, my, my body. Did you try to tell anybody? About what was I, happening I, at home? I did. I, first, I told my father. My mother would call my father and tell him to pick me up home from work. He would come home. He would see bite marks on the inside of my thighs. He would take me to visit my grandmother. He would show her the bite marks. And they didn't want their daughter to go to jail, so they would just tell me, stay strong. It will be over someday. Stay strong. They would say things to her, but nobody intervened. Uh, I even told police officer when I was in eighth grade, um, I couldn't take it anymore. I felt like I was going to go insane. And that day, there was no mandated reporter. I told a guidance counselor once before, and then I, I got in trouble with juvenile detention. Uh, and as an alternative to juvenile detention, I was sent to live with my grandmother in Ohio. It was a change. It gave me stability, gave me some semblance of sanity. And when I returned, I could not go back to the house. Uh, after a few times of her uh, hitting me when I returned, I couldn't take it anymore. I moved in with a friend, and then I ran away, uh, where I became homeless on the streets of New York City, and then traveled with uh, hippies. So you're running away, was that a way, was your running away kind of a way to protect yourself? Yeah, it was a way, it was a way for me to realize that I was about to crack. I was just really, really messed up. I got to a point where I couldn't look at people in the eyes and I had to leave or I was going to hurt myself. There's no doubt about that. And I left and I left into a very cold and cruel situation, which is a cold concrete world that I didn't know anything about. Um, I was drifting. I was seeking. I would have latched on to anything. And the first thing that I latched on to was the hippies. So I was living in a, a, a shelter, essentially a drop-in center in Manhattan behind Port Authority. Met some hippies with dreadlocks, white kids traveling around the world trying to, you know, uh, uh, travel with the Grateful Dead. Uh, I jumped on and joined and ended up traveling with them, living off the radar for three or four years of my life. Uh, and it didn't work out so well because my impulse control turned towards addiction. I started to use narcotics after using hallucinogens, marijuana. Once I realized that I was on a path towards trying cocaine and heroin, I got arrested. Uh, once I got arrested, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X and slowly started to open my idea, my mind up into something that would give me structure. Was this your first introduction to Islam? Yeah, reading, I was about 19 and a half years old. I end up in State College, Pennsylvania, almost Penn State University, in the jail. Uh, the hippie, I got dreadlocks down to the middle of my back. 
and they tell me, hey, do you want to read a book? Uh, do you want to go to the library? I go downstairs to the uh, library of the jail. I couldn't find anything other than Westerners, romance novels, and I find the autobiography of Malcolm X. I had seen Spike Lee's movie, no doubt about it, but the book just absolutely ripped me apart. It was like Malcolm was me, you know, and it was like, here's a person who was taken from his family at a young age, went to live on the streets. Um, I could resonate with a lot of it, but he had restructured and he had found a sense of meaning, purpose, and significance in something that was productive. He wanted to combat uh, injustice and he became a Muslim to do so. I was skeptical because I read about the white devil and his, uh, his, his sort of promoting Elijah Muhammad's nation of Islam versus, you know, more orthodox Islam. But when I got to the chapter where he went to Mecca, renounced the, uh, the, the black man is God, white man is devil perception and became a Sunni Muslim, I was basically hooked. It was at that point that when I was released, I started to flirt with the idea of becoming a Muslim. I started to read about religion, spirituality, and about a year and a half, two years later, I converted. So I think uh, you made an important point, though, which is, you know, when Malcolm came back from Mecca, he renounced the Nation of Islam and, and went to the more the more mainstream version of, of Islam. And we know how your story goes to some extent, and we know that you ended up going in the opposite direction. So I'm curious, uh, looking kind of with the benefit of and the privilege of hindsight, uh, when did when did your turn toward extremism happen on your journey with uh, with Islam? I think that it's very important, I can summarize it in saying that I adopted the Islam of Malcolm X and I should have adopted the Islam of the Prophet Muhammad. So my first contact was with Malcolm, and I think Malcolm's trek too, I think he was basically a traumatized soul looking for stability, and traumatized brains looked for simplicity. And so that black and white world that Malcolm lived in for all those years before he went to Mecca was me. I adopted the religion that gave me stability, it allowed me to have structure, but at the same time, I politicized it. I needed to have that politicized interpretation because what happened was I was exposed, like Malcolm was, to a teacher like uh, like Elijah Muhammad of sorts. I ended up going back to jail, and I was housed uh, in a open cell block with a Moroccan who was a veteran of the Soviet Afghan Jihad. And he found out that I had recently converted. He basically gave me a new identity and gave me a new name after he taught me the basics of Islam and gave me the stability and the structure that the religion entailed. But then at one point he transitioned and he started to teach me the end of times prophecies about the resurrection of the caliphate. Let me just stop you really quickly. Uh, You said that he was part of the, he fought in the African Jihad. Does that mean that he was part of the Afghan Taliban? So the Afghan Soviet Jihad. So back in the 80s and 90s, uh, well, back in the 80s, uh, we, the United States, backed the Afghan, the, the, the precursors to the Taliban, Afghan Mujahideen, to fight the Soviets uh, in Afghanistan. The Soviets had occupied Afghanistan. We saw it as an opportunity to win the Cold War. And in fact, it was a major part in us winning the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, and this individual was a veteran of that era. He, had, he was a Moroccan. And in that era, the Afghan government, people like Osama bin Laden, would go back to Arab countries and they would call Arabs all over the Middle East to come fight on behalf of the Afghans uh, in, in, in Afghanistan to defend Islam. So this so is somebody who had been following the doctrine of Osama bin Laden before we knew, before Osama bin Laden was a famous person. Before 9-11, for a decade before. So this is not a new ideology. Osama bin Laden's innovation is to call for the direct attacking of civilians with 9-11. Gotcha. So the jihadist movement precedes Osama by a long yes. distance. Uh, some would argue it goes all the way back to the Prophet Muhammad himself. The terrorism 
is the innovation that Osama bin Laden brings to the uh -huh. table and then brings to the forefront of the world with September the 11th. Gotcha. So this individual was a veteran of that. Yeah. So what does he tell you? What does he teach you uh, when you're when you're in prison with him for those 40 days? Uh, essentially, uh, he taught me the basics uh, of the prayer. The Islam is based on five pillars. So he taught me the rules and the regulations. He read the Quran with me, and then one day he told me to go in and take a shower to wash every inch of my body that when I that I was ready to make my official conversion because they had learned how to pray in Arabic. Uh, when I came out, he gave me what's called the Shahada, which is the actual testimony of faith. I had become a Muslim, but he said I couldn't be a real Muslim until I learned the five pillars. So once I knew them, I come out, everybody that's a Muslim on the block is dressed in white. He gives me my testification of that I am now official Muslim. And then he gives me a new name uh, and told me that I was clean as a baby, that I was starting a new life. I had converted to Islam and that everything I had done before that was erased. And because I hated Jesse Morton, my birth name, I was really excited about the opportunity. He caught, he gave me the new name Yunus Abdullah Muhammad. Uh, and then, uh, maybe a week after that, um, he got in an argument with a Christian, uh, and uh, he got beat up pretty bad, and went to the back of the cell block, and that's when he started to explain to me that the reason he fought the Christian was because no matter how big the enemy is, Islam does not back down. That Islam will be in a perpetual war until the end of time against the disbelievers, and that in this day and age, it was apparent that an impending war with the American Kufar or the American disbelievers was near, that the Taliban had established Sharia law in Afghanistan. He referenced a statement from the Prophet Muhammad that said that the black flag will be raised in Afghanistan and it won't be stopped until it reaches Jerusalem. That sort of gave me the politicization of the message that I was looking for. I had already been a far leftist sort of anarchist uh, critic of U.S. foreign policy, and it politicized me. It took me from a person who was who stood to benefit a great deal from my conversion in getting the structure I needed and the spirituality that could have quelled uh, the sort of uh, problems and traumatized soul that I walked around with. Uh, and it transitioned it into a political perception which allowed me to look outside of myself and find problems with the world, not problems that I could repair. Yeah. So it's sort of like the old the old adage of, you know, God granted the serenity to accept the things that I can change. You know, the, the sort of the 12-step prayer. The, the ability to recognize the things that I can't and the courage to change myself. And so it totally distanced me from what could have been healthy and transitioned me into this realm of like, I want to be an activist, I want to tear down the world, and I want to rebuild it in a way that's more conducive to my own well-being. So now we can look back with the benefit of hindsight and take a very analytical sort of approach to it. And I feel like that's, that's uh, what we just did. But when you're in the moment, when you're 22, and you're in this, uh, in this, having this experience with this guy. What does it feel like then? Because at that point, you don't feel it doesn't feel politicized. It doesn't feel radicalized. It doesn't feel negative. Or it doesn't feel anything like that. What does it feel like? I really understand now, in retrospect, the importance of trauma and what trauma does to a human being. Trauma detaches the mind from the body, and so I existed in this idealized, utopic state of constant exhilaration because of this idea that I was a soldier acting for a cause. And I lived it, I breathed it, I absorbed it. Everything in my life became about fulfilling it. And it was, what it really was like was like using a drug. I was numb. Uh, it numbed my pain. I didn't have to deal with those underlying issues that were caused by the physical abuse, the mental abuse, the anguish of feeling like I was an unsuccessful individual. I, I, I had, a, I had a, bad, a, a series of, of, of bad luck, I guess you could call it. Things didn't break my way. I was frustrated, I was confused, I was dissatisfied. 
And so now I have this movement where I feel like I belong to something that's bigger than myself, bigger than my country, is global, is attached to God, uh, has a lot to do with consciousness and spirituality, though I was so far away from understanding what that meant. And so I was able to completely detach myself from what was really needed to be addressed in the same way that an addict is able to detach themselves from dealing with everyday affairs and addressing their own well-being uh, and can live in this realm of like opiate befuddlement. Hmm. So that makes a lot of sense. So this was happening in the year 2000 and 9-11 happened the next year. With this mindset, this context, how did you interpret 9-11? So I was already predisposed to believe in the narrative of the quote-unquote enemy. So I get out of jail. I don't travel with the hippies anymore. The only place I could find to live was a Salvation Army in Syracuse, New York. Uh, somebody comes and shrugs me, you know, lets me know something's happened, I'm sleeping. And I get up and I look at the TV, and their first plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. And almost instinctively or intuitively, I'm like, oh, shit, we're going to war with the Muslims and went right back to bed as if it didn't even matter. But for me, it resonated with what the Arab Afghan veteran of the Soviet Union said, which was that there was an impending war between good and evil, between the United States and the Muslim world. I went back to sleep. I woke up, you know, over the next several days, things got different in the country. And I guess the breaking moment for me was when uh, staff at Salvation Army uh, came into my room with gloves on. I understand now there was a great deal of hysteria. Uh, they had heard from my roommates that I was a practicing Muslim. And they wanted to look through my stuff. They found some Arabic literature that they didn't know what it was, prayers that uh, the uh, Moroccan had written down for me before I left the jail uh, in my pillowcase. Uh, they were a bit perturbed and they didn't want to take any chances, so they told me I couldn't stay there anymore. Uh, they asked me where I wanted to go, and I asked them for a Greyhound ticket to New York City and ended up back in Manhattan. Uh, I felt like they had uh, treated me wrong, and I guess that as news continued to break that it was Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, I guess I, 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 I looked at the, uh, I looked at my fellow Americans and I felt like, yeah, you guys deserve to be attacked. And I bought the narrative of U.S. foreign policy being the cause. I saw the world in the same black and white way that Osama bin Laden did. I started to listen to his speeches. I started to absorb the propaganda. And I basically synthesized my identity with a man that I held to be eight feet tall that I didn't really understand much about at all and the ideology that he promoted. Yeah. So you had, in a way, renounced your own sense of American identity, too? Because, I mean, you are as close to American as you can get. I mean, you're a descendant of John Adams, your mom's history. Your mom's family came over on the Mayflower. I mean, you don't get any more, like... Right. I mean, my my father's side of the family is sons and daughters of the American Revolution. Uh, I do go all the way back to Plymouth Rock. I'm myself a definitely uh, about as American in root as you can get. But again, identity uh, is not biology, right? So you can identify with anything. I completely merged my identity because my feelings uh, were that America had betrayed me as an individual. I thought that it was an objective assessment of America, right? So America is oftentimes criticized as being an empire. Uh, whereas a functioning in an unjust way abroad. That's very easy to convince or to make a person think that's the case if it's presented in a black and white worldview. Uh, and until you really get into the nuance of it all, then of course you can be convinced that's the case. And that's what the propaganda of the jihadists will do to you. The more and more you incline towards it, the more and more you'll get sucked in, the more and more you'll become exposed to an echo chamber of the like-minded, and the more and more you can hate the very place that you came from. 
And I became an expert as the white guy with blue eyes that the jihadists could point to once I joined my own movement in New York City and then launched my own initiative. I was the guy you could point to and you could say, look, our message even appeals to your own people. Yeah. And it was a great propaganda tool. But I was firmly convinced that my country of origin was the enemy. Um, and you could not, I could turn a conversation about yogurt into a conversation about U.S. foreign policy and our uh, war against the Muslims in the Muslim world. Yeah, so let's and talk a little bit. Ended. Let's talk a little bit about that, because you started the publication Revolution Muslim, and and after eight years, I think I read that half of all of the terror plots that were disrupted were connected in some way back to you and your organization. I mean, your reach and influence is unmatched when it comes to this. And so I'm curious, how does somebody go from seeing the planes fly into the buildings during 9-11 understanding for yourself what that means in context, but then taking that and building a structure that has such a global impact in just eight years. Well, simplistically, I had so much rage inside of me when I let it out, it became very powerful. I'm a very firm believer now that you project that if you have pent-up emotions and a sort of pent-up ego that's inside of you and you let it out and you exhale it, um, it will manifest itself outside of you proportionate to what's on the inside. I do it now from a very positive perspective where I try to make amends for some of the damage we caused, but I was very, very, very angry. And I left my anger out, and that outlet was jihadism. I always was, I guess you could say, uh, above average intelligence. So I used the intelligence that I had, and I applied it in, in a very, in a, in a different way than had ever been done before. What we did was, as I embedded further and further into the movement, uh, I was able to attract the attention of prominent leaders. I became embedded with an organization called Out of the Haji Road, which was located out of the UK. Uh, their message was very powerful in Europe where the uh, demographics of the Muslims are much higher. They represent a larger portion of the population, less assimilation, more fundamentalism, more interest in what goes on abroad. The United States Muslims outperform their European counterparts. But I was convinced that the message, that the ideology was resonant and sticky enough that it could be applied here in the United States. We used the online arena when there was first this transition into social media 2.0 or the internet 2.0, sites like YouTube, Facebook, even MySpace back then, Twitter was in fledgling. We used all of them. And we were able to create a, an ecosystem of jihadist propaganda in the United States where it had never been realized before. We created English language jihadi magazines here in the United States that have gone on to become probably the primary uh, tool of propaganda that jihadists have used. I would argue that the English language jihadi magazines that were created here in the United States and were then adopted by ISIS and Al-Qaeda have probably been the most successful means of weaponizing propaganda in the history of, I think that's safe to say, the world. I, I, I hate to say that, but it's safe to say that they have been responsible for pipe bombs, backpack bombs, the Boston Marathon bombings, innumerable explosions around the West, and then even adopted by ISIS with the drive-by things that we saw uh, for a period of about a year and a half that even the right-wing extremists then adopted. And we could go on and on. Why was it so effective? Well, my colleagues, one of which was Anwar Aoudaki, directed my associate, Samir Khan, who lived in North Carolina, to start an English-language jihadi magazine. Samir had every intention to go join Anwar Aoudaki, who had joined Al-Qaeda in Yemen. Samir uh, and I developed the very first edition of a jihadist magazine uh, that was called Jihad Recollection. 
And because we both lived in the United States at the time, we had to protect ourselves from prosecution by not including uber-violent articles and content. However, Samir left, and he joined Enron Al-Baki in Yemen. And at that time, uh, a couple months after he left, my organization, Revolution Muslim, threatened the writers of South Park for portraying the Prophet Muhammad in caricature. Uh, we issued death threats against them, and it was sort of a viral threat. Uh, some woman out in Seattle started an Everybody Draw Muhammad Day Facebook page. So Indonesia, Pakistan threatened to shut down Facebook. Uh, it was basically the shot heard around the world. Uh, my website shot up to the top 100 websites in the world for about a week. Uh, thereafter, uh, Anwar Aoudaki and Samir Khan, now in Yemen, launched the first edition of Inspire. Uh, that was an English-language jihadi magazine that basically completely took jihad recollections, which we created in the United States. It looked exactly like it, but now it included an article called How to Make a Bomb in Mom's Kitchen. Mm. That is a recipe that has been used in innumerable attacks since, including most recently the Halloween attacker uh, in New York City in 2017 had copies of it on his phone. He had pythons that used the recipe in his vehicle. I think what I'm trying to understand is what did you understand about what people who were on the path to radicalization needed that others didn't, that you were able to give them give them that? You know, why were you in particular so effective? Because we knew, we knew that it wasn't just about an ideology, that the ideology was what facilitated the progression from holding a radical idea to uh, extremist commitment and behavior. And that in order to do that, you can't just espouse ideas. You have to create a movement, uh, a network, if you will. And so what we did was we created a counterculture that we could, that you could have access to online 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We had radio shows. Uh, basically, we had a radio channel. We had constant chat rooms open where you could call us on the phone by Skype, by instant messenger. We ran publications almost every day, some original, some cross-posted from other websites. So we kept you embedded in our jihadist ecosystem. We translated the letters from leaders. And most importantly, what we did was we shot on video every single aspect of our lives, whether we were eating in a restaurant together, whether we were studying Islam together, whether we were preaching on the streets of New York City. And we used New York City as a backshot that made it look like we were active in every way, shape, or form, uh, acting in defense of jihadism wherever we might be. And our, we used the ideology in a way that conveyed that to in a way that it, we branded it, it was like Bin Laden on Madison Ave. Mm. Or as they called our, uh, our, our magazine, it was uh, Al-Qaeda's Vanity Fair. We did it in a way that appealed to Westerners, and we gave them a community where they had none. So we would get, uh, we were a bug light for misfits, as the person I work with now to counter extremism put it, uh, Mitch Silver, who was monitoring me at the NYPD at the time, he called us a bug light for, for Muslim misfits. People that were looking for something to belong to, but we were very good at not just giving you a piece of a message and then telling you to adopt the view, we gave you a community that you could belong to from the minute that you made the turn in interest. Yeah. Immediately you would be absorbing our message 24 hours a day, and then we'd also tell you not to absorb anybody else's message, that we were the only credible source uh, for information uh, because there was a conspiracy against true Islam. Needless to say, you're effective. Like I said, uh, I think at your height, half of all of the terror plots uh, in America were connected back to you or your organization. And like you mentioned with uh, South Park, that, con that, that decision, the consequence of that meant that you had to flee uh, the country because you were going to be placed under arrest. And after kind of a little 
John through the Middle East, you ended up in North Africa in Morocco with your wife. And while you were there, it happened to coincide with the Arab Spring. You're now 31, 32 years old. Around this time is when your de-radicalization process kind of began. And I was wondering, what was it about the Arab Spring or about that time? Maybe it was the age. Like, what was happening there that put you in the mindset to say, the way that I have been living life to this point is not is not right for me anymore? Well, there are innumerable factors, but I think the most significant was the fact that uh, I had a, ma- by the time I moved to Morocco, I had a master's degree in international affairs, so I was not ignorant of Middle Eastern politics. But by moving to Morocco, because of controversy and having to lay low, I was removed, uh, not by my own choosing, but just by circumstance from the jihadists on a day-to-day basis. Mm. And so here I am in Morocco, I'm on the run, I'm actually teaching English and I'm tutoring people to study for their GRE test because they want to go to the West to get a quality education. And the Arab Spring breaks out and I find myself having mesmerizing conversations with Arab millennial youth. And I really, I I, I start to recognize not only that there's no interest for a fundamentalist caliphate, but that there's no way that it would benefit the people because the problems in the society are very clear and they are a direct result and derivative of things I take for granted, which is the right to believe and to speak what is on one's mind, uh, a, do, uh, a system of law that actually works for everyone in society. might not be perfect in the United States, might not be perfect in Europe, but it's a hell of a lot more fair and just than what was happening to these individuals. The ability to uh, have democratically or elected representation, the entire system of governance revolved around a king, but not just a king, corrupt officials everywhere, uh, police that were taking bribes. And it really made me appreciate the fact that societies that operate uh, efficiently uh, are dependent upon the ideas that they uh, establish themselves upon. And it was very clear that they didn't want American democracy. They just wanted basic rights. They just wanted basic a basic systems that worked for them and it gave them an ability to be the, to adopt the identity that they desired. And I really did, I was impressed. And they were smart, they were intelligent, they had a lot of creativity, and I really liked them. They became friends. And it really started to embed a seed of potential change. Um, unfortunately, it was too late. I was ultimately arrested. Two weeks after Osama bin Laden was killed in Abbottabad, I was picked up in Morocco, sent for extradition to the United States. Uh, but I was open up enough and then further things proceeded to occur to me that allowed me, uh, fortunately, to continue to take steps in my own de-radicalization even after my arrest. Yeah, so quick question there. You mentioned um, that when you were with the youth talking about a kind of, uh, you know, what was happening in the Arab Spring, you talked about, you made this comment about uh, the system not working for the people. And I'm wondering if when you were in the U.S. Uh, propagandizing, if you kind of had a similar mentality that you thought that what the work that you were doing was in the service of the people. I did. I didn't, I, I didn't really necessarily want to serve American Muslims. No, not at all. I considered them absolutely hypocritical. But I did think that pointing out the hypocrisy of the, of, of the United States' legacy of slavery, for example, it was a good propaganda tool because in Islam, they really don't have the same situation with regard to racism. It really is an effective ideology that has, uh, has, has, has been successful throughout history in putting people of different skin color and different ethnic backgrounds together in a way where they're bound by this common belief in one God. Mm-hmm. So we would use that. We would highlight the injustices in, 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 in the criminal justice system regard to incarceration rates juxtaposed against the rest of the world. 
uh, and we, we would we would highlight highlight that. But what became apparent was that in the United States, while never ideal, it is sort of a story of progressive development. I think, from an academic standpoint, the conservative scholar uh, has put it in the best way I know how today, uh, Thomas Sowell, he says that there's a difference between a constrained and an unconstrained vision. Your constrained vision realizes that history is a is steps, fits and starts of progress, and that we can't be idealistic to expect a egalitarian or a perfect world to bloom out of nothing tomorrow, but that the unconstrained vision tends to hold this decay, and that's when you get radicalization or the true believer that wants to tear down the world and instantly build up something that's perfect and that works. So I looked at the United States and its flaws, not in a way that said, for all of its flaws, there's still more rights and still more freedom here than there is in almost any other country in the world. I highlighted its flaws as if to suggest that the flaws that existed in the Middle East were only a byproduct of the United States' support for tyrants abroad, and that if the Islamists, like Osama bin Laden, were in control, then everything would be egalitarian and everything would be bliss. Mm. And when you look at the real world, that becomes apparent that's just not the case. That is the delusions of a radical who has no clue what they are talking about. Yeah. Uh, you were ultimately extradited, and on your flight back to the U.S., the agent that was escorting you puts a Quran down on the private plane and says, would you like to be called Jesse Morton or Yunus Abdullah Muhammad? And you said Jesse Morton. And I'm wondering why you said that. Well, I guess it's a story of identity again, going from killing off Jesse Morton, and then when I went to jail, I sat in Moroccan prison for five months. I was fortunate enough to meet a person who I had translated his lectures. He was incarcerated after Casablanca bombing in 2004. He sort of counseled me, I guess you could say, talked to me about throwing my life away for the cause, yeah. asked me to pray to Allah that God would make a way out for me. And so by the time I got on that plane, I had changed even further. Uh, and I really, I had remorse, I had regret, but I was convinced that it was too late. And when the officer put me, put the ground down in front of me and asked me what I wanted to be called, I myself was completely shocked that I said Jesse Morton. And to this day, I can't tell you why that happened, but I do know that it felt, as I sat there, I don't know, there was something inside of myself that felt like it was, it was cathartic, so to say. Mm. It was almost like accepting for the first time that I really, truly was who I was. It was almost like returning temporarily, at least, into my body and becoming my true self. Uh, at least, if only for a minute, at least being able to say that I am Jesse Morton made it seem like uh, I didn't hate myself to the degree uh, that I thought I would have to because it looked like I was going to get life in prison. So yeah. I don't know how to explain it with words, but it was kind of rewarding. Uh, shocking, but... Uh, cathartic and rewarding at the same time. Yeah, and that started you down in a process, and I remember reading about there was a female uh, FBI agent who was, it sounds pretty instrumental uh, in in helping you through this this next phase of your evolution back to Jesse Morton and back into integration into society. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about about her and, and what she did, how she treated you, you know, what was it about your experiences and interaction with her that helped you through this de-radicalization and evolution in, back into Jesse Morton? I think, I think a way we could describe that, maybe a, a probably would be the rehumanization of myself or of Jesse Morton, uh, because that's essentially what the FBI agent did, was she rehumanized me as a result of not dehumanizing me in the same way I did her. So one thing about radicalism 
honest, there's perhaps no greater enemy than an American military agent, counterterrorism official, or whatnot. And for good reason, people in the counterterrorism community treat me with a lot of disdain. And I had to do a debriefing process in order to get a plea that capped my sentence at 15 years. So before I was sentenced, I had to work with two FBI agents. And if I was dishonest with them, I could face life in prison. And as time went on, there was a female agent, one of the two. There was the individual that put the crown down in front of me and asked me whether I wanted to be called Jesse or Eunice. He was pretty angry with me and wasn't exactly uh, uh, pleasant. Uh, the female, I thought it was a good cop, bad cop system at first. She was nice, empathetic, um, and I figured it was a game at first. But there was no way, because my debriefing process was so long, that it could sustain itself when it seemed like even there was no benefit in it for me. And it became apparent that I was willing to be honest about everything. But regardless, she and I sort of developed a sense of trust. And because she spoke to me as if I was an authority, really, she was like, I'm fascinated by the ideology. You know, can you explain this to me more? Or she would ask me about an individual, and she's like, why do you think he's not somebody that should be of concern to us? And it became interesting to the, enough for her to the point where she would bring in people like from the behavioral analysis unit of the FBI. They would ask me, you know, what about Syria? Syria is a... Uh, uh, a bubbly place. It was the beginning of the Syrian civil war. And I'd say, like, you crazy? It's going to be a new Afghanistan. You're going to be fighting these people for the next generation unless you get involved. And, and we'd have fascinating discussions about that. And it became apparent that they still, they didn't consider me an authority, but they wanted to hear uh, what I had to say. And so I felt like they rehumanized me to a degree. And that went on for several months. And long story short, somebody told me about a plot from solitary confinement. And, um, I felt compelled to tell them about it. It ended up being accurate information, and the beginning of my cooperation with the FBI uh, proceeded from there. And I worked intimately with her for, for several years thereafter. And you ended up getting a very reduced sentence. I think you served three years uh, in prison. And you have three since... And three and a half. years. And you have since gone on to, uh, in, the, in, in many ways, dedicate your life to countering violent extremism. That is the objective. Uh, I have had fits and starts associated with some level of failure, but um, we are on a, a path uh, to do so. I became, after operating as an FBI informant, I was outed in the Washington Post in uh, 2016, February, as an informant, and had to make a decision uh, about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I decided being that the Washington Post had put me in the public realm, to consider going public as America's first former jihadist. And I did so with a university in Washington, D.C. that runs a program on extremism, a think tank. Um, and I went public to quite a bit of fanfare. Um, and I was given the opportunity of a lifetime, so to say. And I was very successful at disseminating my story and getting people to understand more about what it's like to be in a jihadist's shoes. Giving my input, I was, uh, I was, I was very pleased. However, as I said, um, being a jihadist and an extremist is not unlike addiction. I had operated as an extremist for over a decade of my life where I was detached from my body and dealing with the original ailments and uh, difficulties that had allowed me or facilitated my progression into support for jihadism in the first place. And so once the ideology was removed, uh, I was put back into a question of who do I want to be? What is my identity? And I had forgotten that um, my uh, youth and my trauma manifested itself as addiction. And um, I started to drink. Uh, the guilt from that uh, pushed me back 
slowly and slowly into addiction. And I basically threw the opportunity of a lifetime away by relapsing uh, on cocaine uh, and, uh, and, 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 and falling back into addiction and getting arrested. In January or February of 2017, I was returned to jail for 90 days, uh, plus a stint in rehab. And uh, it looked like I would never be able to counter extremism again. Since my release over the past two years, I've been able to rebuild and I now run my own organization, uh, interestingly enough, with Mitch Silver, the former director of intelligence of the NYPD, who monitored me for at least five to seven years of his life on a day-to-day basis. And we've now partnered to create this organization called Parallel Networks, where we create networks that can offer the same sense of meaning, significance, and purpose that extremist recruiters like my old self uh, offer their recruits. Um, and we, we're doing some very interesting things, and we've made a contribution um, I like to think that now I can officially say I'm de-radicalized, and I hope that I can spend the rest of my life trying to make amends for the, the damage that I've caused. Mm. So Parallel Networks, just to be explicitly clear, is something that is going to, I think, have a big impact because in a lot of ways you're bringing the community of people who are formerly radicalized uh, together and giving them a place where they can belong and have purpose that can be of positive contribution. And I think it goes back to something uh, that you told me a while ago, which is, you know, when it comes to anything with radicalism, it's important, or anything in general, it's important not to focus purely on the individuals, but it's important to focus on the networks. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how Parallel Networks is going to create a community within people, not just former radical Islamists, but from other uh, extreme groups and, and bring them together in a way that they're personal lived experiences can be used for a communal societal good so one of the things that we have done over the past year and a half to two years is we have reached out to other former extremists people that have been affected by violent extremist attacks people that are acting in fields that are related to right-wing left-wing and jihadist extremism fields such as you know having left a gang membership being involved in cults and what we've done is we've assembled quite an interesting collective of individuals that provide support to one another that try to build out what we call our parallel network. And our parallel network is based upon the philosophy that we live in a world of networks. We all belong to networks. And it is our networks that synthesize and create our individual identity with our sort of social self. Uh, and it is that social self that can become part of a sort of collective consciousness dependent upon what network we belong to. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to build a parallel network that parallels the current situation we have in our world right now, one of polarization, one of hate, one of extremism, and resentment of the other. And our problem that we face and that we perceive to be the root cause of the perpetuation of an age of extremism all intersecting with each other is the fact that in a polarized middle, we always look at the other as the enemy. But as Einstein said, you can't address a problem at the same level uh, of consciousness that created it. And so the left-right divide is really a perfect example of uh, unproductive means of arriving at a sort of a parallel system. And one thing that we've realized in working with far-right extremists, former far-left extremists, former jihadists, cult members, gang members, etc., is that at the end of the day, it's all about identity and it's all about finding a purpose of meaning, significance, belonging, camaraderie, and community. And that every individual on the planet is looking for a sense of meaning with their life. And that when you create a network that can appeal to individuals, you can say, hey, you know, this is something that you can belong to. 
And in the same way that I can tell a young kid to go blow himself up for the cause, I can tell a young kid, sacrifice yourself and do something with your life that is incredibly rewarding, that is bigger and better than simply trying to get a high-paying job, attain some materialist pursuits, that is doing something with your life that gives you a sense of significance, but that also gives you a, a, a purpose to belong to and a community to belong to. And we're crafting that, first and foremost, for other individuals that know what it's like to be an extremist Jews, but then also as a preventative mechanism so that people that are susceptible to radicalization and extremism can join what we call our Save Hate Program, our Society Against Violent Extremism and Hate Program, where people adopt the perspective that we're waging a generational struggle, that while we think the liberal order is guaranteed to go forward, a lot of us take it for granted, authoritarianism is on the rise, tyranny is everywhere, and that people should be adopting this position that it's a generational struggle, and we're trying to create a network and a community that people that are like-minded or that other people that have left movements can come and get that same sense of support uh, from. Well, I'm very excited to see how this all comes together because, I mean, I think it is such a unique opportunity and I'm so glad that you're doing it. I'm very curious also because you mentioned the state of affairs in America right now. So two things. The first is what's your take on what has happened since um, you know since Obama left office uh, just in general in America and and how all of these things feed into your work and into the larger sort of struggle for ideology around the world. And secondly, I will never forget a comment that you made to me when we talk, so just for the record, I interviewed Jesse the day before Trump was inaugurated in 2017. And the comment that you made to me, which I will never forget was, you know, when Obama was president or when Bush too was president, uh, you had to do a lot of work to try and convince people that your ideology was the truth compared to what, you know, people saw on TV or what the president or whatever would say. And since Trump was, uh, became president-elect and started running for president, you didn't have to jump through all those hoops anymore. Now all you had to do was hit retweet because the messaging was coming from the top. And if this is what the president believes and this is what the people have elected, who the people have elected, then by definition, this is, this is what is, this is the truth. And so that stuck with me because it really brought it into concrete terms. So I'm wondering, what's your assessment of things today and also what has happened over the last two years since Trump has taken office? Well, I think uh, that essentially a lot of what I said is actually uh, proven uh, valid and true. One of the agendas on the jihadist uh, long-term strategy is to force polarization at home because they know that polarized democracies are inoperable, that they cannot do long-term planning. Uh, because there'll be shifts from party to party. And in the same way that Russia has tried to exacerbate polarization, jihadists know that what they've done and what we consciously did at Revolution Muslim was force the anti-Muslim sentiment, which forced the Muslims to choose a political side of the aisle, which was to join the left and the Democratic Party, and force their right to grow more anti-Muslim. So one benefit that Obama gave was the conspiracy that revolved and was promoted by Trump that he was a crypto-Muslim. Um, and in the beginning, it was very hard to convince Muslims that Obama was against them. Um, however, what we saw during those eight years of Obama was a further galvanization of the right. And now if we look at the Electoral College results in the presidential election, we see two countries, blue on the coast and red in the middle. Those are the conditions that are ripe for civil war. They've only exacerbated under Trump. So when we talk about polarization, we see a country that is completely divided and that all 
ultimately with regard to the debt numbers that are going up under Trump, with regard to the policies that are going up under Trump, the pulling back from the Middle East that started with Obama, but his pulling out of Afghanistan, pulling out of Syria. For the jihadists, that is victory on the horizon. Um, that means that the U.S. empire is winding down. Little do they know, the actual benefit, benefactor of that is China and Russia. Um, and so as far as the jihadists are concerned, they're winning. Uh, their long-term plan of reestablishing a caliphate, whether you're ISIS or al-Qaeda, is simply uh, put not even on hold. The recent five years of events with dismantling ISIS's caliphate are just part and parcel of a cleansing process as far as they're concerned. And the indicators that they look at for victory are the fact that people are fighting each other at home and that the terrorism from the far right that is now on the rise is going to enhance radicalization on both sides of the political spectrum. And the further radicalization that you get, by necessary consequence, if I say a very low base rate of radicals go on to become extremist actors or terrorists, then the simple math suggests that if I increase the pool of radicals, then I will increase the small subset of those radicals that go on to commit violence. Mm -hmm. And by increasing radicalization on both sides of the political perspective, it's obvious that we're going to enhance extremism and terrorism. Now we're more worried about domestic terrorism than we are with that abroad. And in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, when we thought there was going to be democracy, the United States failed to back it to a degree, and the jihadists filled in the vacuum. So what they expect to happen now is they expect another financial crisis to happen in the West, that will be akin to what happened in 2009. Once that financial crisis comes, they think there will be no barrier for their being able to overthrow the tyrannical authoritarian Arab regimes. And they think that they'll be about five to 10 years away from victory. And so it is as easy as retweeting Trump. First example is his recent endorsement to get Benjamin Netanyahu reelected in Israel, that he believes that the Golan Heights in the West Bank that is by international consensus should belong to the Palestinians, that it's occupied land, should belong to Israel. That is the primary topic that you that Bin Laden utilized, the Palestinian-Israeli issue, to galvanize his support for jihadism in the run-up to 9-11 and directly thereafter before he got his war in Iraq. So all you have to do is retweet that to show that the United States wants to make Jerusalem belong solely to the Jews and to uh, overthrow uh, the Muslim control of Al-Aqsa, and it fits completely into the narrative and the conspiracy theories of the jihadists. Yeah, so from a domestic perspective, what do we need to do as Americans in order to counter that? We need to understand that when we look at the other, we have to have empathy. We're divided. We're divided on the key issues of the, uh, of the age. We, we're united in some things, but Americans are divided. We're black and white, and democracies don't work under black and white perspectives. When you start to fight, and to argue in an us and them realm, you cannot have an educated citizenry that can make democracies flourish. We have to elevate our consciousness. We have to talk to people that we disagree with. So if I'm liberal or democratic, I have to reach out to people on the Republican aisle, be able to put myself in their shoes, listen, not try to instruct or preach. And we have to come up with a way where just in the same way evangelical Christians have never met Muslims and therefore they hate Muslims until they meet. We have to do the same thing with our politics right now and the contentious issues of the era. And that's the kind of system that light upon light, our paradigm wants to promote. We have to have a elevated level of consciousness. We have to promote things that will give our citizens more education. We have to have enlightened individuals. And we have to really, it doesn't take a massive, you know, radical change. We just have to take the next steps as a society to creating flourishing democracies 
And in order to do that, we have to talk and we have to create forums and media, podcasts like your own that promote the idea of engagement with the other, that promote the idea of creating opportunities, communities where people that might even seem to be your enemies uh, can convey openly and in safe spaces how they really feel so that we can bridge some of those divides. If we don't learn how to do that at a national level, I fear that we will fragment, uh, we will disintegrate, and that the liberal world order that we take for granted will be replaced increasingly by democratically elected authoritarians that eventually will, you know, pose a, a threat to the, to, to the order that I think we've come to take for granted as uh, conspiratorial and as, and, and as extreme as that itself might sound. Jesse, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me all the way from Jordan. I cannot believe you're all the way over there. But I really think that um, your comments and your insights and the way that you're you're living life now is such a benefit to humanity and to our society. So I hope that I certainly do, but I hope that other people heed your heed your warnings and heed your insights because um, I do agree with everything that you said in that last piece, and it is kind of what we need right now. I'm Jahan Sharif, and you've been listening to Jaja In. Keep up with Jesse and Parallel Networks online at pnetworks.org. You can follow me on Instagram at Jahan Sharif and catch up with past installments on my website, jahansharif.com. And if you haven't already, sign up for my weekly newsletter delivered right to your inbox every Saturday morning. And lastly, but most importantly, please consider making a donation to support this work. Every contribution is reinvested and makes a big difference. You can do that on my website too. Be sure to join me right here next week for another installment of Cha Cha In. Thank you so much for listening.